From London to Lisbon, from Cape Town to Charleston, we tell the stories of the people that make the world of international law and business turn. We give glimpses into their lives and provide insights from their experiences. These accounts come from every sector and every industry around the globe. Simply put, and without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal, the show where practice meets personality. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law and dispute resolution. Listeners, here we are at the end of season two. Can you believe it? Who had global pandemic on their 2020 bingo scorecard? It is hard to fathom how much has changed in the last nine months. And so here we find ourselves, our little podcast here, just telling the stories of people across the field. Who knows what the rest of the year and the start of 2021 will bring us. So before we head into this week's guest, a couple of things that you should know. TOT will return in early 2021, probably just a few weeks before the beast moot. But Disputes Digest, our weekly news show that airs on Wednesdays, will continue. This is normally where I would tell you something like review, share, follow up with the show on LinkedIn. And of course, I am gently reminding it, but we are excited to announce that TOT is finally near completion. Listen, don't look at me at that tone of voice. I know, I know, I'm a millennial. We should have had a website a long time ago. Anyway, stay tuned as we will be launching the official Tales of the Tribunal website in October. We'll of course continue to use the LinkedIn page, but the website is going to go live soon and will be our main source of information. Finally, if you have any suggestions for guests, topics, etc., or if you're interested in working with TOT, drop us a line at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. The final guest of season two is someone who has been an inspirational figure, name, and influencer in the field of international dispute resolution. She currently serves the general counsel for the U.S. Council on International Business, the USCIB, works as an arbitrator, a founding member of Arbitral Women, and a co-founder of the list of black arbitration professionals with the U.S. Connection. I'm speaking, of course, of Miss Nancy Thevenin. Nancy and I had a great conversation and even told us how she almost wasn't a lawyer at all. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Nancy Thevenin. And we'll see you on the other side of the show to wrap up. Hello, and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from the wide, wide world of international law and dispute resolution. Listeners, here we are at the end of the season the final episode of season two. And with me today, to make it this very special occasion, I have with me a very special guest, Miss Nancy Thevenin. Hi, Nancy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so in introducing Nancy, as with most of the guests on the show, there is a million different places we could start, but I'm gonna start with that question that I ask all of my guests. Nancy, who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? Okay, I'll give you my elevator speech then. Um, so who am I? I was born in Haiti, came to this country, the US, uh, when I was about six or seven. I was educated in the United States. I went to Cornell undergrad, um, 
there I spent a year in Spain. When I came back, I majored in Spanish literature and history, so I had a double major. I then decided to, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know if I wanted to go into diplomacy, so I did a year um, studying uh, international relations and then decided to go to law school, so applied to Tulane, so I spent two and a half years at Tulane. Half, um, I spent a semester in uh, Paris 2 uh, in France, and then I came back, I decided to practice law in Florida, so I got my license in Florida, worked there for about seven years, moved back to New York to work for the ICC, spent some time there, went to Baker McKenzie, as a global coordinator of their international arbitration group, and I was also a special counsel in their international arbitration group, that I left that to go out on my own. So right now, I'm out on my own. I teach um, one semester international commercial arbitration at St. John's. I serve as external corporate counsel for um, ICC USA, the US National Committee to the ICC, and I am an independent arbitrator and mediator. Yes, and that was indeed an elevator speech. So um, we're going to rewind a little bit and, uh, and, and ask some more about those things. And, you know, you kind of teed it up very nicely for the conversation we'll have. Um, so the first question is, we also apparently almost had Nancy the diplomat. What was the moment? What was the deciding factor? What led you to the practice of law instead? I... Looking at it, I've always been interested in international relations, international affairs, and I don't know, maybe it's because I'm from another country and I've had to live here. My first languages were French and Creole in Haiti. Like people in the house spoke Creole. I remember I was in preschool, they spoke French, some of them family members. I do think languages are a different mindset, so I was already international. Um, affairs and matters and um i wanted to be i really researched into how to become a diplomat um and i wasn't sure what the career path would be but i knew you could do almost anything so that is one of the reasons the, the key reason why i went to law school not necessarily to be a lawyer but to have the training of a lawyer that you can then use in different um differently different career paths well, sure. And there's something that you mentioned there that was uh, something I was planning to, to mention later, but I, I think it's, it's a good point. So you mentioned that your first languages were, were French and, and Creole. Yeah. How about the rest? I mean, you know, I understand that you speak, uh, you know, the, those languages, but also, you know, English makes sense as well. But where did the, the Spanish come from? I, mean, I know you lived in Spain, but was that by, you know, an intentional sort of choice or um, how did you acquire the rest of your languages? So I studied uh, Spanish in college. I mean, living in New York and then being from Haiti, you are, Spanish is around you, right? So in our parties, we play uh, salsa, merengue, we have a lot of Haitians who speak, um, who speak Spanish. So it's, it wasn't unfamiliar. And I knew it was a very useful language to know living in the U.S. So I took up Spanish in, in uh, college, and I chose to immerse myself in Spain, where the, you know, what you call the original Spanish um, uh, developed. Um, so that's how I, I, I got to master, not master, but become very, very familiar in Spanish to the point that I would write papers in Spanish, of course. 
um, um, and I love the liter literature um, of Spain and, and Latin America. Um, that's basically what happened. Then when I went worked in, in Miami, of course, Miami has a very strong Latin American community. Your daily interactions, you're, you have to, uh, it, well, it's a more comfortable existence there, especially in Miami, if you understand Spanish. I got to use that a lot there. I got to use it at work. Um, and um, I, I really, really uh, love the culture also, so it, it was very easy fit for me. Sure, claro, claro. <laughs> um, so that makes sense. Um, well, here's the question then. Uh, do you think you're going to pick up another language? If so, which one? Well, my hope has always been to know seven languages. And um, I can understand Portuguese, and that's not a hard stretch. Um, if you know Latin, I would like to learn Portuguese very much. And I learned Swahili for a year in college. And I love that language because it was so logical. Uh, it was the way it was derived, beautiful sentences together to sentences and phrases. But one of the things I found as I grew older was that it does, it's worth it to take the time to master the language you already know. English is tough. English for me has way more exceptions than, than rules. You know, all the rules have, <laughs> have exceptions. And uh, French is also difficult. Um, the written French, the spoken French, um, Spanish as well. I'm, I'm much more comfortable in Spanish in uh, daily life, I would say, yeah. Um, so Swahili, I would like to go back and, and, and master because um, I wanted to learn a language that was non-Latin based. I wanted to know all the Romance languages. Um, and then it's, it's a dead language, but I do would like to know more of Latin. Latin, Portuguese, Swahili. Because Swahili is one of the most widely spoken language in Africa. Because Africa has, you know, you, you pick any country in Africa and they speak, they could speak several different languages. But Swahili is one that is mostly used in North and East Africa. So and I thought it would be useful to know. Sure, that makes sense. And I think, uh, you know, you know, if you ever you know, want to make the, the bold jump into Mandarin, you know, Beijing is is, is waiting for you. <laughs> thank, you. thank you very much. I know some words. I like it. Yes, <laughs> very much. Thank you. It's supposed to be very, very difficult, right? 30 years to learn even the characters. Um, uh, well, it, it just takes the intentionality of it. You just have to take a long time. You know, it's a lifelong sort of endeavor. I don't think there's a point when you just say, ah, I've mastered all of Mandarin, but you get there. You, you know, you work on it little by little. Um, so I will definitely consider that. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, sure. And so, all right. So we'll leave languages there for the moment. Um, you know, and, and thinking back and turning to what has been, you know, a large swath of your, your professional career is how about international arbitration? What was the, the path or the, the sort of force that led you to it? I mean, you know, you're practicing law or you studied and you were interested in things internationally, but there's a lot of things you could have gone to. What was it about international arbitration that, uh, that was um, sort of the, the interesting for you? 
Thank you. Um, for when I was in uh, law school, I took up um, I took a class on arbitration. They were teaching us AAA arbitration at the time. But of course, you didn't have I didn't have an appreciation for it really. This was Professor Carboneau's first book on uh, commercial arbitration. They, uh, he, he tried the case with our class, for, was one of the first classes um, for his book. And, but this international dispute resolution, what I was familiar with was international litigation. I took international litigation in college, I'm sorry, in law school. And then when I went to France, I read a book from the civil law perspective. We used a book about um, international litigation and got to compare the, the similarities and differences, a lot of differences, especially in con uh, some of the concepts of contract law. However, it was not until I uh, was looking for a job, right? I, I went to Florida because I, I studied abroad. I came back and I you basically start from scratch. I have to find housing, et cetera, um, including employment for after I graduated from law school. And so when I was looking for um, uh, a post as an associate, I went to the interviews and I said, I'm interested in international litigation. And I got, that doesn't exist. You know, I knew it existed. Um, there are certain things you need to understand if you're suing foreign parties or they're suing you in US courts. Um, similarly, if, if the action is taking place abroad. Um, but that was the general response. And I worked in litigation for about four years at a small law firm, got a lot of uh, courtroom experience, which I'm very grateful for. Um, I did cases from the beginning, meeting with clients to trial and or settlement, settlement negotiations and payment, etc. cetera. Um, and then I got recruited by Sigaraga Davis, um, Mullins and Grossman at the time. Uh, Jose Asiaraga's firm, and I believe it was one of the first firms that was doing disputes work. They did uh, some appellate work, but it was mostly court work and arbitration. And they are the ones who started telling me about um, arbitration. They had an arbitration, a couple of arbitration cases. Um, I, I was, it was my dream job. It, I discovered arbitration. I got the bug. I loved it. I loved the fact that it was using skills that I had learned to hone in, in the, my previous years as an as an associate, and it was also using my language capabilities, sensitivities about cultural differences or cultural appreciation for what justice means and how we derive at justice or how we derive at the truth. I love the flexibility of it. Um, if, if one is aware, right, about arbitration and how it, it, it's supposed to happen and it should happen, the way we can craft different proceedings to suit the needs of the parties uh, and their, their counsel and the arbitrators. So I appreciate that. I got the bug then. <laughs> well, yeah, um, and you know, there are many ways to get the bug. You know, some folks have uh, a path like the one you've described. Some people do the visa moot. Some people kind of just fall into it. Um, but we all find ourselves here one way or another. Indeed. Yeah, and well, and so picking right up on that note, um, Nancy, you know, throughout through your career, you've had, you know, you've worked at law firms. You've worked as, you know, the deputy director for an arbitral institution. 
um, your professor, um, working as doing some general counsel type things. Can you reflect on 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 what you on how those roles sort of differed, right? And they kind of influenced the where you kind of see the next part of your career, or um, what you're what you're currently doing. I think one should appreciate wherever you are and be the best at it to the extent possible. And you'll find that whatever, wherever you are, will help you for wherever you go or you need to go next. And I th I've been lucky in that. I've seen it, right? Uh, so having really good litigation skills helped me a lot when I had arbitrations. Um, even though it was hearing, um, when we had cross-examination, I, I knew what that was, I knew what it looked like, I knew what, what needed to be done. I needed to learn a different way of doing things, but I had the basic skills. So going from the litigation firm to uh, another disputes firm, but mainly uh, focusing on arbitration, that helped a lot. And the other thing that helped me at Asti Davis, I think, was, uh, and Davis, who was a partner I worked with the most, really threw me into helping him um, with the Florida State Bar Association. Florida Bar Associations, they, they have an international section. They created an international litigation arbitration section. And Ed was the chair. Ed just recruited me and we had a blast. We helped, you know, it was the first year, we had to figure out what our mandate was and what we wanted to do, and that was to help build an international arbitration community in Florida. Recruiting all the lawyers we knew that did this, it wasn't a lot at the time. And I got to see something amazing there. I got to see the building of a community, uh, infusing interest in the community for international dispute resolution. Be making them aware that you know some people were doing it without even without labeling it. Um, some people were not taking advantage of the opportunities that are there that were there. So just building a community uh, in Florida, I think for me that really started with the work of that committee. We we um, did a, a a program on international litigation arbitration that first year. Ed Davis had to literally get on the phone with all the major partners of the floor, of firms in Florida and say, you need to show up. <laughs> if you're saying you do international work, you need to show up. Uh, but the second year, the third year, what you know, and one year we did um, a mock, full day mark, which was just brilliant. Uh, it was a, a real case. We asked the lawyers to write, it wasn't a real case, it was a mock case, but it we asked them to write real briefs uh, with respect to different stages of the arbitration in an effort to educate uh, the people in Florida about how to how to conduct arbitrations better. And then we we had a lot of people from Latin America also come to our conferences. But so you see, what I learned there segue into why I eventually got to do what ICC as deputy director because there it was. Uh, my experience as counsel in arbitration, I, with that experience, I was able to help people when they were asking questions about different aspects of, a, of the ICC rules and practices. 
And then with the work I was doing with the bar, I was able to assist Lorraine Brennan with programs, the roundtables, the seminars. Um, so, see, it it that there. So I was um, very very grateful for that experience. And then, um, so, um, and I was recruited uh, by Grant Hanessian uh, to join Baker. Uh, they wanted somebody to help, um, and they recruited me for that, but I wanted to get back into practicing. I missed it. Um, so we worked out an arrangement where I was able to do both. The work of the group, as you know, as you start building something, there's more work to do. Um, the people there, uh, the associates, the partners, I that, that was a really, truly experience very knowledgeable people, truly international. So I got a lot of experience from that. Um, but one of the things I realized was managing uh, this group, how we spend money, what we go after, where we go, I realized that we're running a department, running a business. So I thought I'm ready to build my career as an independent arbitrator and mediator. So I went out on my own to do it. and using a lot of know that I had learned from Baker about managing a business. Um, and so that's where I am. No, that, that, that's a, thank you for laying it out that way. That, that's a great um, story. And I think it really does a good way of showing that, you know, that it's, there's levels to this, right? It's not just like you wake up one day and you're like, ah, I am a general counsel or, <laughs> you know, one day I'm running an organization. Now, one question I do have to ask Nancy is that, um, one of the earlier guests in this season um, mentioned that you guys crossed paths somewhere in your in your background, and that that's Ben Davis. He said that you know you speak of Ed Ed throwing you into the fray. You know Ben says that he kind of turns around and makes reference like ah yeah, and, you know get folks like Nancy involved. Where, when did that happen in this chronology? When, when did that happen? Oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, that happened on the very first day I started working for the ICC. My first mm. day I worked with ICC, um, and uh, I don't know if you know Lorraine Brennan. She's a formidable character. You, you get to know her, and she's uh, um, uh, that she's very warm, but she she's she comes across as very uh, formidable. So I had just started working with you know, Lorraine, and I didn't know her very well. And she, she had asked me to show up to this uh, meeting of the city bar uh, with her. So we, we met there and the feature speaker was Ben Davis, who, Ben Davis, who was lambasting the industry for its lack of diversity. And I'm sitting there, Ben is, you know, African-American. I'm the only other African-American in the room. <laughs> I'm like, I don't even know these people, but they all look very important. <laughs> and, um, so, and, and then Ben, you know, points to me and says, you know, oh, one of these days I'd like to see her lead this group. I wonder if that's ever going to be possible. Um, and <laughs> as I was, and then he goes, he, he writes, he writes an article and then mentions me specifically. So I, had, I felt like I had the spotlight, like, what are you going to do? <laughs> what, put, put dropping tasks on people and calling folks out? That doesn't sound like Ben Davis at all. At all. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> looking back now, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad because it just sort of keeps you accountable. You know, wh what are you doing? 
if if this is an issue and 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 how are you using um your your plat your privileges the, the 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 fact that you've come where you you are where you are to help those who are coming after you well sure and i think you know that that sort of dovetails nicely into um one thing that we absolutely have to talk about and that's you know this initiative this project that you and and Catherine simpson have sort of um spearheaded um a little bit earlier this year and one that i'm glad to participate in as well and there's been a lot of great feedback from and that is the list now for those of you that are listening they don't know about the list the list that we are referring to is uh black arbitration professionals with the u.s connection can you talk some about where that idea came from and what's going on with it and maybe what's to come thank you uh for that um what, what can i say this idea started for me um with the jay-z case and i think the jay-z case even though uh we know there were a lot of litigation aspects to it let's leave it at that um it did raise concerns with the arbitral institutions in the u.s um got us to look again at the people that are being appointed and saying how many of them are African-American. Now, there are African-Americans in domestic space. A lot of them are doing um, employment disputes, a lot of them in different areas. But what we're looking at is where are they in the complex commercial cases and where are they in the international cases? And I thought about this and I said, well, I, I know African-Americans. And thinking deeper, I said, well, I, I kind of, not really. I know people from another country who emigrated to the U.S. who do international arbitration, right? Uh, we're all from the Caribbean, Latin America, somewhere else, or naturalized citizens who are doing arbitration. I'm saying, where are the people, the African-Americans from, born and raised in the U.S.? Is it that they're not interested? Is it that they're not exposed to this? Where are they? And that, I think, one of the things that the Jay-Z case sort of, we all knew it. You know, Ben has been talking about this for a long time, but the the explosion, the scandalous aspect of the, of the Jay-Z case really pushed it to the forefront, making uh, everyone, I mean, maybe given the times also, really put at the front of their agenda to, to tackle. So I met with, uh, some of the leaders of the arbitral community. I work at USCIB. We are not an arbitral institution. As the U.S. National Committee to the ICC, we do not handle cases, but we do have opportunity to nominate uh, U.S. arbitrators to ICC cases. And uh, I, relying on a database that we keep, uh, people who voluntarily register with their information, and also on the expertise and experience of the members of the Nominations Commission, who really have a, collectively have a wonderful, great knowledge about different arbitrators around the world, US arbitrators. But where are the African-Americans on that database or it, in our knowledge? I could not name many, uh, except for Ben Davis, who is not taking cases. Um, you know, but, then, but Ben Davis has the, you know, he has the background, the education, the experience. He doesn't you know, take cases. Where are the others? 
And so I started looking, I started meeting people. I, I met you, I met Brent Clinsdale, Clinsdale. Uh, I met uh, a former state judge in New York. So I started meeting people and I think in like four or five months, I only had five, <laughs> five people. And, 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 and I was happy to see that they, they were male because I do think that is where we're missing also. Right. Even when you look at the African Americans or, or naturalized U.S. citizens, African doing uh, arbitration, they're mostly females. I met Catherine at the ITA conference uh, earlier this year, and we started talking about diversity work. I've been trying to collect the list of African American. It's taking me months, you know, with the time I have. And and she said, well, let's let's work on it. I think I can I think I can do the same thing I tried to do with CETA, and we can find some people. And then um, working at it, of course, COVID happened. But one of the first things problems we came to was describe the people in the list. You know, it's easy for us to say African Americans we're here. We are identified African Americans uh, with a connection. Uh, we have people there who trained in the U.S. from Africa, living abroad. Uh, we have people who are interested in it. So I think, the and it's self-reporting, right? The bios are self-reporting. It's, it's a, it's a, at first we had, I think maybe about 30 people. We really needed to push and reach out to so many different organizations to get 60. Um, and 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 I'm not sure why that is. Why did we have to search so hard to find uh, the uh, people who are interested in this field? So now we have a broad list. We have people who are very experienced, people who are uh, have a lot of domestic experience and want to transition to the international. Then we have uh, entry levels. Uh, you have the law students who have taken a class and are interested. So with that list. We want people, everyone, parties, law firms, institutions, take a look at the list, identify people there that you would reach out to, which they already are, reaching out to people on the list that they have identified could, they could then adopt or include on their, on their rosters. Law firms are reaching out to people they might not have otherwise known about, reaching about their backgrounds. I'm using the list to identify people that I want to get into USCIB's arbitrator database. I want to talk to them. I want to get more information. I want them to know the people are considering uh, nominations, who are considering uh, arbitrators for nominations. So make an effort because that those are like I can also work with uh, law students uh, in terms of opportunities for with us at USCIB or even with my with my firm. Um, but. Uh, the people that I care with immediately, unfortunately, are people that already have some experience that we can then try to transition. We want to change the landscape, and it's going to take some, which is why I, I'm proud of the list. It's, it's a good list. And when you have a list, it excludes a lot of people, and that wasn't the intent. I imagine the list will get more um, professional in the sense of we're probably segregate people into their, their experience levels or by location. It's going to look different. But one of the things I'm excited about is that with the list, even the original version of the list, we were able to identify more people.
many people who are already very experienced that many of us have no awareness, which is, which is a problem. You know, it's, I always say it's an opportunity to see who goes on the list to be seen by others, that they exist, they're here, they're ready, they're, they have the interest, education, experience, let's work with them. So. No, I, that, that, that's great. That's fantastic. And I think I think it's a great initiative. And I think that's kind of sometimes what gets people caught up is that they think they have to have, you know, the masterpiece sort of done on day one. And I think sometimes it's about getting started and, you know, getting some a little bit of momentum going. And then you find someone that has a similar idea. And next thing you know, you've started a started a, a great initiative. that has got a lot of attention. So I, I commend you and, and uh Catherine for that. Um, one sort of thing tying off that that sort of, I guess, discussion point about, you know, the, the impact of diversity to some extent is, you know, a, as we sit here talking this week, Nancy, um, lots of conversations are going on around the world about what diversity means, what does inclusion mean, what does representation mean? I mean, earlier this week, you have um, the, the CEO and exe or executive of a major financial institution saying it's hard to find uh, black talent when we know that that is just not true. I mean, as we've just said, they're, they're there. What, what is the sort of value? Because one of the conversations that, that we were having is that it has to be persuasive to the end user as to why diversity is important. So I'm curious to know, why does diversity and inclusion matter in your perspective? It matters because if we're in the business of dispute resolution, right? And Disputes can be resolved in an adversarial context, such as arbitration, or in an amicable context, uh, such as um, negotiation, mediation, and other types of amicable dispute resolution methods. And at times, for us to understand certain nuances in the disputes, about the cultural perspectives that are coming, uh, you need the arbitrator sensitive. You don't necessarily, I'm not saying uh, you have an African-American uh, you know, business like Jay-Z and you need an African-American necessarily, but you need somebody who understands the cultural perspective come of that party to the extent possible. And that's what they were looking for. Um, and so, which is where diverse, you know, diversity is important. It's important because studies have shown when you have diverse pool of people making decisions, you get better decisions. You get more innovative uh, solutions. You, they bring in perspective. Like if you're a marketing team, uh, especially going, for example, in this new world that we live in, you really do need a diverse pool of people. And you're gonna need a diverse pool of people to help resolve these disputes. Uh, me as an arbitrator, I'm not gonna always be able to understand or be sensitive to certain uh, nuances of a case, um, but I do bring a certain perspective based on my life experiences, education, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I, I think that that is why it's important. You just get a, I, I think, I wish the world was a lot more open to, to the diversity issue because for me personally, I want to work with the best people. Uh, and when we say we have a diversity and inclusion issue, 
I reject that only because it says just even if this person is excellent, I'm, I'm not going to work with them because I look at their skin color, eye color, whatever, and say, I don't want to work with you. For me, that makes no sense. I want to work with the best. I don't care if you're green. I want the best. And so, uh, and so we, we should all be more open to that, to working with the best and to, uh, and, and part of that is identifying those that are there, identifying those that we, we can, that just need a little encouragement to get there and making sure the ones that are coming, the, the younger generation, uh, that we are helping train them to be the best and to be ambitious, think about different career paths that they may not have otherwise dreamt about. No, sure. I think that that's great. And I think, I'm sorry, say again. It's one answer to your question. One answer. No, and that's that's exactly the point I was going to make. I think it's uh, it, talking about diversity and inclusion and representation are, are difficult things to talk about, not because, not solely because they're just um, sometimes issues people don't like to discuss, but I think it means many different things and many different things in many different contexts. So it's hard to sort of give people a, a seven word answer as to what it is or one sentence sort of definition because there's a lot of humanity to represent in those words. So, um, well, before we, uh, we take a break, one thing that I would be remiss if I did not talk to you about Nancy would be, I want to know more about one, if you could uh, give some background as to what USCIB is, and two, what's going on with it, and what do the folks at home need to know about um, going into the end of 2020 and heading into 2021? So I am mostly work with the ICC part of USCIB, and then there, only the arbitration uh, work that we do. So it's a policy group representing uh, U.S. businesses that transact abroad, that are engaged in international business transactions abroad. So basically, uh, a lot of U.S. businesses, uh, their concerns, whether it's tax, tax regimes in different countries, uh, customs and trade, investment. Um, so in a nutshell, that's what USCIB does. Um, and uh, it's been doing it for, for decades. We have an office in New York and D.C. I don't work on the policy side, and then you might ask, well, does an arbitration have a policy side? Yes, but for the for the arbitration side, there's trade and investment uh, policy work of the people in DC that work on, uh, you know, the model, the ITs, and uh, the US signing on to certain agreements, et cetera. Uh, they, they have a stance, the US business stance on um, bilateral investment treaty and the, and the uh, proposal to have a multilateral court, et cetera. But on the arbitration side, we were very closely with the ICC. Uh, in turn, so uh, at the ICC, what do we do? Our responsibilities are one, to nominate a US member to the ICC court. Uh, two, we have, we get the opportunity to nominate US members on the ICC commission and arbitration and ADR. And that's the think tank of, uh, of the ICC, so they are the ones studying the rules, coming up with the modifications, or opining on them, and in, in consultation, of course, with the court. Um, and uh, you know, the, the wonderful 
report on climate change, uh, the task force report on climate change uh, uh, and dispute resolution of those types of disputes, um, the really useful report on emergency arbitration proceedings, uh, um, how they work, what the standards would be. If, if you're in, in practice in international arbitration, you definitely need to keep an eye out for what the commission is, is producing and, and publishing. Um, we have a national committees, uh, so I'm sorry, we have an arbitration committee. It has 15 subcommittees, nine of which are geographical and um, five of which, no, six of which are topical. Uh, we just added amicus. So uh, right now, one of our most active one is the sole practitioners group that um, um, my former, uh, um, the former director of ICC uh, helped create, which is for sole practitioners like myself. Um, you know, you work on your own. Um, so we try to have programs to help people run their business better. Uh, a, and just be better arbitrators, be aware of what's out there. So, you know, yesterday at the ICC conference, I mentioned, you know, holding hearings, uh, virtual hearings, quote unquote, or holding hearings by internet, uh, cybersecurity, getting tribunal secretaries. We're going to do a program, not for sole practitioners, but for our group on negotiation skills, negotiating and mediation. Um, so that's what the arbitration uh, subgroups do. They mostly, especially the ones from the different regions, work with Sakana, which is the Secretariat of the International Court of Arbitration for North America, uh, in, in organizing these things. And then I do a lot of work with the Nominations Commission, which is a group of six people um, who, when we get a request for nominations of a U.S. arbitrator from the ICC, First thing I do, we all make sure we clear conflicts and then we brainstorm who would be the best uh, arbitrator for this. Uh, and I work with the secretariat um, back and forth uh, dialogue with respect of, you know, is there anything about the case that we should be aware of? I communicate with the commission. In finding these, those people, we give them a long list. They give us a short list. I contact those people. Uh, and so I also, for USCIB, I um, evaluate all the requests for amicus, and then I do general corporate count, take a look at a contract, any, any type of provisions, et cetera. So that answer your question? It does. No, that, 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 that's a lot. And I think it gives um, some folks uh, some good things, some good threads to pull about the USCIB. Um, well, tell you what, we're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, we're going to do some uh, speed round questions. How's that? Okay. That's good. <laughs> All right. We'll be right back. Hey there, listeners. As many of you may already know, the start of the VSMOOT 2021 season is just a few weeks away. For coaches, arbitrators, moodies, and mooding enthusiasts alike, it's never too early to start making plans for the 2021 pre-mooting season. So, make sure to put this one on your calendar. The Asian International Arbitration Center, AIAC, is hosting an annual pre-mood competition from the 5th to the 7th of March, 2021. Now, just like the VIS, it's going to be all digital. 
As a supporting organization, TOT is excited and looking forward to hearing all the fantastic and compelling arguments and seeing new Moody's and arbitrators joining the fray. Who will be this season's champion? You might just find out at the AIAC's virtual pre-moot. For more information or to register, email premoot at AIAC.world. All right. Well, Nancy, thank you for staying around for this second portion. Um, look forward to, to getting into these speed round questions with you. Um, so the first question I have for you, Nancy, is uh, one of the things I'm really curious and always interested to hear from folks are what have been some of your guiding influences, uh, role models, or anything like that that sort of um, were, were impactful upon you and uh, finding yourself where you are now? My parents, my family. I'm one of eight children. I'm number five. We're very close. My parents really stressed education. Education, a certain way of behaving, given who we are. So my definitely my, my family. Um, I've been fortunate to have had the opportunity to learn from everybody I've worked with. Uh, the good examples and even in the examples there were lessons there that helped me become better. Uh, I don't think the lessons in life have ended. You know, I think that's part of being alive. Um, the, uh, being educated about, uh, I don't know how to be, how to be, you know, you know, you have certain values and every once in a while you get tested, they get tested. And then you're in a position and saying, what should I do? And I think um, uh, one thing I found is once you go back to those core values, the answers may become more obvious. Um, but, you know, practicing law, and, and when I was an associate, certain cases, you're just like, oof. But no, I'm, I'm grateful for everyone. That's why I admire. Um, I want to, I, like Deborah Enix Ross is someone that was wonderful to me because she was one of the first African-Americans I knew and the industry has a long history in, in this. Um, so I, I've, I've often, cause sometimes what happens is you, you don't always appreciate the historic ramifications, the historical um, underpinnings of what's going on, what's happening. Uh, in, in any given situation. So it's, it's good to know people like that who have been in the industry for a very, very long time um, and um, to be able to ask, um, that's all <laughs> Sure, no, that, that, that's a great answer. Um, okay, next question. What are you reading right now? What kind of books are, are on your table? <laughs> Maybe buried under paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I'm, I'm listening to Before You Know It. Uh, it's about the unconscious mind. Why we do, I'm fascinated by that. Why we do what we do, what's really going on, and, and just how easily influenced we are. Um, and the only really way to uh, overcome that or combat those challenges is to become aware of 
the how the unconscious mind works uh, these um, uh, things that are influencing our behavior without us knowing so yeah it's fascinating I'm really enjoying it so what I do is I listen to the book because I, I like to organize and clean I listen to these books and if I, they're very interesting I then purchase it read it and mark it up that's what I like <laughs> <laughs> okay okay no that's fair that's fair um, let's look at music then. What are what kind of music are you into? Do, do you have any favorite artists or anything like that? No, no. I like music. I, I have a background in dance. I love all types of music. See, I listen to music from Haiti, but I love it. I listen to Latin music. I love salsa merengue. I even like a tango. I like um, music from the Middle East. I'm listening to some Buddhist uh, bell things right now. I, I I love music. I love how they make you feel. I don't necessarily need to understand the words. Um, I even, I like stuff from, from China. I like stuff from India. I listen to okay. one of those people that you can just send me music. The thing about me, I don't really know artists. I don't collect albums. I'm happy to listen to music. Happy I discovered YouTube. Um, oh yeah, and, and Spotify where they, they play different things, jazz. Oh, wonderful! I love discovering, and I can't really say I have a favorite. I, I really like a lot of different music and different languages. Well, if you ever find yourself in South Carolina, we're gonna have to send you to a country music festival or something like that, and see. You know, uh, that that's a whole different. You know, there's a whole spectrum of the the country music world. So that might have to be something. Uh, you see what shuffle sounds like for you there. <laughs> that sounds very, very cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Well, one question I'm also curious about is, especially working from home, we find ourselves in a situation where the workday has somehow gotten longer. How do you, and well, and one of the, one of the issues or ramifications of the workday getting longer is that if can really get tired, you know, physically, mentally, in a lot of different ways. What are some of the things that you do to kind of maintain your mental and physical health? It's hmm, a good question. Um, it, it has been really quite interesting. I remember reading or hearing something that says, no, what we're doing is we're, uh, we're living at work. <laughs> we're not working from home, we're living at work. Um, I was already working from home uh, two or three days out of the week, but it is very different to work from home all the time. Um, and having your own business, I was already working a lot, you know, basically every day, time, right? You're working for something that you care about, that you want to create, that has a direct impact on your life and the quality of life. So that's fine. Um, so in terms of things I do, um, I think it, it helps to have a schedule. It helps to try to go to sleep if you can at a certain hour or having rules that say if I, you know, sometimes I end up having to go to bed at two, three o'clock in the morning. Like if I do that, I'm gonna have five hours, I'm gonna do this. Exercising is very important. Um, stretching, especially as we get older, is crucial. Um, exercise, try to eat clean. Um, and really take time to meditate. I find that helps me a lot. Um, a couple times I like being in silence. 
So I will, you know, turn off the radio. I don't have a TV. I, I turn up, I close the computer and I for hours and a day or a full day, just no noise except what's going on in your head, which is loud enough. <laughs> mm. um, just, so that it, different things. And I do think right now we need to be a lot more understanding and uh, considering, you know, the news that's how you're feeling uh, physically in terms of health wise. Um, missing that personal interaction or interaction with your family. We have to be very understanding of people um, and especially with ourselves and give ourselves the time we need to just be okay and, and, and continue to, so that we can continue to do what we need in our lives in general. No, sure. I think that that's, I think that's great. And I think that, again, there's not really, any set way, but you, we all have to figure out how we're going to deal with this and having some structure, um, I think probably goes a long way in that. Um, you know, I've got just two final questions here for you, for you, Nancy, um, as we wrap up. Uh, the first one is, if you were approached by a current student or a recent graduate or, or someone that's just looking to break into the world of international arbitration, and they said, Nancy, I wanna break into the field, what would you tell them? What would you recommend that they do? Um, right now, uh, it is, you know, most schools have a class in international commercial arbitration or an investment arbitration. I recommend you take those classes. If you're not already involved in biz, I recommend you do that. That is a, a wonderful. And a, now, used to be that people train for biz. Now they not only train for biz, but they're required to also take a class to understand the concepts that they're arguing during the biz. Um, those things are really good. Interning at an institution, law firm that uh, has international commercial arbitration or even working for anybody in the industry, um, try those avenues. If you can't and all you can do is get a job uh, working as an associate either in the transactional or litigation side of a firm, just be the best that you can be in that position. All your skills will come to bear in the international world. Uh, and so uh, if when I meet lawyers in those uh, situations, I tell them, be the best there, really learn everything you can, but also get active with all of the different young arbitrators groups of the arbitral institutions, all of them have one. Um, not only the institutions that administer cases, but ICA and uh, uh, IBA, all of them. Uh, there are all these young groups of the programs are free of charge. There are also the advisories of the law firms that are, are constantly providing us with uh, news and analysis of cases that are coming out in different jurisdictions. So there are ways to stay involved. Uh, and, you know, we don't have the opportunities now to have the the receptions that were really good at networking, but I think most of the uh, organizations are thinking of different ways to integrate, um, to um, enable people to have that network, even if it's by Zoom, you know, virtually, quote unquote. But um, so that would be my advice. If while at school, take take the classes, uh, do a lot of some of the programs. Once you graduate and try for these different avenues. If you can't get a job working as a lawyer, be the best lawyer you can be and stay active, stay 
connected to the international nutrition community, eventually something, um, because of your interactions there, you might find out about a position. You know, you can no, right. write papers. There are ways to stay active. Well, that's right. And I think, you know, with a, especially with everyone working from home, you know, a tool like LinkedIn is just invaluable. You know, your ability to sort of, you know, kind of show up at people's offices sort of or knock on their door, basically, is you can just shoot them a message and say, hey, let's get digital coffee in. Most times, uh, you know, if people have a moment, they might just say yes. You never know. <laughs> I tried that. Okay. <laughs> um, all right, Nancy, this is the final question of Tales of the Tribunal Season 2. Are you ready for it? Okay. <laughs> all right. And it's a hard question. Um, all right. Huh. It, is, it is 5 p.m. on a Friday. This is no longer COVID times. You can do whatever you'd like for the weekend. How are you going to spend your weekend? Depends on where I am. Right? You can be anywhere. This, that's the magic of this question. It can be anywhere. No work, no client obligations. Free to do whatever you'd like for a weekend. Meaning, so if I'm, if I'm in New York, I'm a little bit of a homebody. I would read a book. Just read a book. <laughs> Without feeling guilty that I have work to do <laughs> and emails. Okay. If I'm in France, I would I'd go for a walk, do something outside. Yeah. Yeah. A guilt-free walk and/or book reading. That is a that's a yeah. solid weekend. You know that. Yes. Something guilt-free. Anything guilt-free. You know. <laughs> You just can be okay. I can do that. <laughs> no, that's fair. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Um, well, um, that was the the super hard question. Aced it as I knew that you would. Um, Nancy, before we wrap up, do you have any shout outs you want to give anyone? Tips of the cap? Anyone you want to say hey to for back home or at home? Uh, you know, I was thinking about that. Um, no, not really. My students, you know, if. Um, some of them get to hear you. I have a lot of students from China and I know you have a, a really wonderful relationship and have learned the language Mandarin. Um, I hope they hear this. I want them to know that I'm thinking about them. I hope they're well and that they're thriving their careers and, um, and I hope to see them in the future someday um, just doing well, that's it. That's fair enough. And uh, just for, for, for the, the shout out accuracy's sake, your students in China, what school or what institution are they at? I, I can't recall right now. I think they're from different ones. Uh, this is from different semesters, but I don't only have students in China, I have them from Africa and the Caribbean as well. So all my students, if they get to hear this podcast, I want them to know that I'm thinking of them. Sure, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Well, Nancy, I can't believe the final hour of season two went by that fast. Um, great having you in the digital studio. Thank you so much for being here. Um, thanks for coming by. Thank you, Chris. I am Nancy Thevenin, and there's no disputing it. You are listening to Tales of the Tribunal. Thank you all, and we will see you next season. <laughs> Take care. So, there you have it. Nancy is truly a tour de force. 
She doesn't know it yet, but we're definitely already scheming on how to get her back in the digital studio for another conversation. I hope y'all are taking notes because there was a lot of great information there on finding your path, career development, and just useful information in general. Before we wrap up for the season, Nancy and I want to give a warm and huge shout out to Professor Katherine Simpson of the University of Michigan, the co-creator of the list of black arbitration professionals with the U.S. Connection. She was instrumental in getting it off the ground and going. And I kid you not, she and Nancy were going around like Nick Fury style, putting together this community. And I, for one, am excited to see where it goes next. With that said, we've made it to the end of season two. Hey, before we get out of here, I really just want to extend a heartfelt thank you to each and every one of you for listening. The show has grown so much. Our community has grown so much over the past six months. Sheesh, it's been a long season that I am moved by how many people tune in each week. Our community has more than doubled. We're getting downloaded on every continent and a lot of different countries. It's humbling. So that's for you listeners. I appreciate you giving me your time this season, and I look forward to bringing you an even better show in season three. If you want to reach me during the off-season, visit the LinkedIn page, the soon-to-be official talesofthetribunal.com, or drop me a note at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. Tales of the Tribunal is produced by Mobetta Solutions. Show music was created by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. Research assistants for season two have been Romit Kohli, Amar Singh, and Ramatulahi Jalo. Until next season, I'm Chris Campbell, and there's no disputing it. You're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, and we'll see y'all next season.